Let's turn to 3 John. Which chapter of 3 John are we in? How many chapters are there? One. 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 We're in that one chapter. And I have an ability to make one chapter last really long. But I trust it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're going to come up just a couple verses short of finishing, so I'm not sure what we'll do with the little tag at the end. We'll figure that out later. But today we're going to go verses 9 through 12. Let's read those together. I wrote to the church. Of course, this is John the Apostle speaking. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and the truth from the truth itself and we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true let's pray father john's getting into some pretty strong stuff here with this problematic leader in the church where gaius is also a leader apparently we pray that you would teach us lord you promised that your holy spirit would teach us, lead us, guide us into all truth. So we ask you to bless this study. May we learn and grow from it and apply it to our own lives and our own church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John says, I wrote to the church. So it appears that he's referencing a previous letter which was apparently intercepted by Diotrephes who was another one of the leaders in that church. He goes on to tell us that this gentleman, if you want to call him that, Diotrephes, loves to have the preeminence among them. So apparently he was one of the elders in Gaius' church, and he was on a power trip. And, of course, we all know this kind of thing never happens today in the 21st century church. Right? Those problems have all been eradicated. Actually, it's always been a problem in the church, and unfortunately, that is one of the things that tends to turn people off, but we are dealing with human nature. Oftentimes, I will see how young believers, immature believers, they come into the church with kind of an idealistic attitude about the way things should be, and it's understandable because if we were to really live by the Scriptures, by the truth of God's Word, to the full extent, right, then we wouldn't see these kind of things. But unfortunately, uh, even though we are born again by the Spirit of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, given the gift of eternal life, I always hearken back to our study from several years ago in the book of Romans, that as long as we're in this life, on this planet, we will struggle between the old man and the new man, the dual nature. It's an ongoing struggle that we will face the rest of our lives. How successful we are in overcoming this problem 
is a matter of our own due diligence, really. You can get saved and then not do another thing your whole life to grow in Christ and theoretically still be saved. As long as you don't turn your back on God, you don't renounce Him, denounce Him. But it would be, the, one of the analogies the Scripture uses for new believers is like a newborn babe in Christ, a baby, baby Christian. Now just imagine though, you have a baby, and this baby is a be- beautiful, cuddly, soft, cooing, gurgling love bug. All of us parents can remember that, right? But what if, month after month, year after year, that little love bug never grew up? It was always just a floppy, wobbly, you know how babies, they can't hold their head up, they don't have any control over their bodies, nor their elimination system. And sadly, I mean, there are some times when children are born with a disability or things happen in life and, and they have to be taken care of, but that's not the norm. The norm is that we, all of us here today, we grow up into mature, responsible adults who can take care of ourselves, right? Do all the things we need to do every day. But imagine, for no good reason, not because of a illness, an accident, a handicap, or anything like that, the baby just never grows up. Now, maybe the baby gets to be a full-sized person, but they're still in a stroller. You still have to change their diapers. That's not real pleasant, is it? You still have to spoon-feed them. And you know what? We know what kids like to do with food, right? They throw it, they drop it, more than they eat it sometimes when they're little. And that would be kind of what it would be like if you come to Christ, make a profession of faith, but you don't ever make any effort to grow. And at one point, Paul even said, you should be now ready for the meat of the word, but instead I have to keep giving you milk. And so the reality of it is, and this is where a lot of people do get put off track, derailed, whatever, because they come into the church thinking, wow, I've arrived. I'm in heaven now. No, you're not. This isn't heaven. It's the closest thing we're going to get until we see him face to face. Worshiping together. I don't know. I had a good time with the worship this morning. I hope you did. Studying the word of God. This is the closest we're going to get in this life to heaven, but it's certainly far from perfect. Why? Because none of us are perfect. And it breaks my heart when I see young believers get stumbled, put off track, because they were expecting perfection. If we could achieve perfection in this life, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross in the first place. So here's this guy, Diotrephes, and even two strong believers, two good men in the Lord, Paul and Barnabas had a parting of ways at one point over their conflict regarding Mark. Do you remember that in the book of Acts? Mark bailed out on them on a mission trip. Paul was not happy about that. So when the next mission trip came up, Barnabas suggested bringing Mark. Paul said, no way, Jose. And Paul and Barnabas actually had a separation over that. They were later reconciled, but even men of that caliber 
can have disagreements. So as much as we don't like it and would wish to avoid it, and I think it's important to understand this, so when these things arise, we are not thrown off track. The church is filled with imperfect human beings, and as such, there will inevitably be conflict. So, I don't know, maybe we need to do a better job of explaining these things to new believers, but this is the reality of it. There will be conflict. But John is not hesitant to identify the character of this Diotrephes. He loves to have the preeminence. He likes to be in control. He likes to be recognized. He likes to be a big shot in the church. And then John says he does not receive us. So it seems that previously, now we know in this letter we've been learning, John is commending Gaius for his hospitality towards these various men who are traveling around, speaking, teaching in the various churches. And John is encouraging Gaius, continue with that practice. Uh, When these are men who are recognized and endorsed by the apostles like John, please receive them, please be hospitable to them. But Diotrephes didn't do that. He apparently had refused to honor John's previous request regarding the traveling ministers and uh, more than likely didn't even read the letter to the congregation. And it really, the, the fact that he would disrespect the Apostle John in this manner is a graphic display of the condition of his heart. Jesus had taught his disciples who became the Apostles about this whole thing of wanting to have the preeminence. Mark 9:33 through 35, he came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Can you just picture those guys? And we know that Peter and John really were constantly jockeying for position. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first... In fact, at one point, James and John, Boanerges, the sons of thunder... The guys who said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire and nuke that village? And yet when it came to asking Jesus for a special spot, they had to ask Mommy to do it. Mom, would you please ask Jesus if we can sit on his right and left hand in his kingdom? Do you remember that? I think that's so funny. So we know that primary in this dispute must have been James, John, Peter, the three closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And so they were arguing about, well, Jesus likes me better. Jesus loves me more. Sounds pretty petty, doesn't it? But we can be that way too. So they kept silent. Verse 35, he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all. Boy, I bet that put them in their place. And servant of all. And so they would learn these hard lessons. And now John is trying to pass these on to those under his care. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. The elders who are among you, I exhort, Peter writes, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Peter was one of those three, Peter, James, and John, who saw Jesus 
and all of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he was speaking from the first-hand position. A partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, just the opposite of what Diotrephes was doing. Now perhaps Gaius wasn't aware of these things that had transpired, and John is trying to make Gaius aware of them so that perhaps he can deal with them there in the local church. One more passage, Galatians 5, 19-21. This is talking about the works of the flesh. Then Paul will go on to write about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit grows up within us as we follow Christ. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. The works of the flesh obviously come from the carnal, sinful nature, apart from Christ. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. And here's where I think we see diatrophies start to come into the mix. Hatred. Usually that will go hand in hand with this desire to have the preeminence. There's hatred, there's contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, Paul writes, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I guess classically, traditionally, we would look at this passage and then we would perhaps question the validity of the salvation of someone like a Diotrephes. Uh, some years back, Chuck Missler wrote a book about the kingdom and he put forth a theory that was very controversial and I'm not sure it's been that widely embraced. But it would present an alternate option to this idea that these people who do these things rather than like a diatrophies. You say, well, if that's the work of the flesh and these folks will not inherit the kingdom of God, then was diatrophies really saved? There's no indication here that John is questioning his salvation, but the, the teaching that Chuck Missler put forth is that within the kingdom there would be those. We know that there will be rewards, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That there would be those who, and he even went so far as to talk about that um, outer darkness. We, we understand that traditionally to be uh, one aspect of hell. Missler put forth the theory that there would be those who would actually be saved but would not be partakers of the kingdom per se. They would have a more distant, less close relationship with God in eternity. And it hasn't been widely accepted, but it's an interesting premise so it's one of those things. We talk about, you know, Arminianism. You can lose your salvation if you fall into sin. Calvinism, you cannot. But I think the teaching of the Bible is don't mess around and try to find out. I don't think God wants us to know for sure because if we knew for sure, well, I grew up in an Arminianist church. And every time you sinned, you had to get re-saved, which really isn't biblical. 
Salvation is a one-time experience. But if you follow up, up on that theology of Arminianism and you lose your salvation when you sin, you've got to get saved over and over again. It just doesn't make sense. But on the other hand, the Calvinistic viewpoint, well, if you're really predestined, foreordained, chosen, they call it irresistible grace. Calvinism pretty much erases the free will of man. But the problem with that is the free will is what causes us to be created in God's image. God has a free will, right? But with God, he's perfect in all of his ways, so he always chooses the right thing. He always does the right thing. God is perfect. He created us in his image, gave us a free will, and what did we do with it? Adam and Eve in the garden. But irresistible grace teaches you've been foreordained, chosen, elected before the foundations of the earth, which is true. But from the Calvinistic viewpoint, you have no say in the matter. So basically, God will force you to get saved, whether you like it or not. I just can't buy that. I believe that salvation occurs when God's sovereignty and the free will of man intersect. God draws us by His Holy Spirit. The Bible says no man can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. The Holy Spirit draws you, but you still have a choice. And when you choose to listen to the voice of God, to the listen to the Holy Spirit and say, yes, Holy Spirit, you are right. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus did die on the cross for my sins. He is the Son of God. He did rise from the dead on the third day, and I believe that and I receive that. So only God knows where Diotrephes' heart was really at. But there's no doubt when you look at this list of the works of the flesh, that's something that as believers we should be making every effort not to manifest in our lives, right? So in my opinion, according to the words of John here, it would appear Diotrephes, at the very least, as a believer, was walking in the flesh. He, wa he loved to have the preeminence. He wanted to be in control. He was on a power trip, and uh, he didn't receive the instructions from the... Can you imagine not receiving instructions from the Apostle John? That's the, he, uh, the Apostle John, after the ascension of Christ into heaven, was probably the closest thing to Jesus on planet Earth. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved, Right? And to not receive his instruction, notice John says he does not receive us. John and the men he was endorsing. And by rejecting these men that John had recommended to the church, dear Diotrephes, I highly recommend these men. I believe they would bring some great teaching to your church. Please receive them openly, lovingly, with hospitality and uh, receive their ministry in your midst. But by rejecting these men that John had recommended to the church, Diotrephes was rejecting John as his overseer in the Lord. And this is something I think that would be helpful to every one of us to remember. Because sometimes I think we get our feelings hurt when we try to share our faith with people and they don't accept it, they don't receive it. 
When people reject, reject the message that we bring as ambassadors for Christ, it's actually Jesus they're rejecting. And if we think of it that way, which is, is absolutely true, because we're not Jesus, we didn't die on the cross for their sins, we didn't write the Bible, we're just simply messengers, and when they reject that message, we might take it personally, but really it's Jesus they're rejecting. So rather than be hurt or offended, we should be concerned for them. Right? Because they're rejecting Christ. And ultimately, if they reject Christ unto death, that is the unpardonable sin. And they will not spend eternity with God. So rather than being hurt, offended, discouraged, disappointed, we, we should take that as a call to prayer to pray for that person. Oh, Lord God, please help them. I pray sometimes for some of my extended family that don't know the Lord, aren't walking with the Lord. God, open their blinded eyes, open their deafened ears that they might see and hear the truth. Give them the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. We need to pray very specifically for them because that's exactly what needs to happen in order for them to come to Christ. So verse 10, Therefore, if I come, John says, it's not a guarantee, but apparently John is considering it, praying about it, looking for an opportunity to visit the church of which Gaius is a part. If I come, in other words, Lord willing, I will come. I will call to mind his deeds which he does. So again, it's not the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Diotrephes. It's the work of his flesh. It seems that John's intention is to correct Diotrephes probably in front of the entire congregation. 1 Timothy 5.19, Paul writes, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses. So we know that John is not overreacting. He has solid evidence that this is what has occurred. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. So in the early church, there was a concerted effort which was spearheaded by the apostles to maintain strong discipline within the church because they knew if they didn't, things would get away from them and get out of control. Here we are 2,000 years ago. I don't know how many different denominations we have, how many different cults we have in the world today. Many, many. And most of the churches today aren't willing to deal with things like this. The usual pattern is if somebody in a position of leadership gets in trouble, they sweep it under the rug, and that person disappears. That's not how they did it in the early church. It's not an easy thing to bring someone up in front of the congregation and publicly rebuke them, as it were, but that is the biblical process, and that results in better, quicker restoration and healing I know well, even within the Calvary Chapel movement, there have been situations, and like I say, usually what happens is that person is whisked away as quickly as possible, and a minimum amount of discussion takes place, and that's kind of the world we live in today, but it's not necessarily for the best interest of the church. If, you, if you've ever had thoughts about, I wonder why the 21st century church is not stronger than it is. I mean, a lot of churches can put on a really good facade, right? Everything looks so amazing, wonderful, fantastic. But it's a facade. But a really powerful, dynamic church 
is a whole different ball game. And it happens when we actually follow the guidelines in the Word of God. We've tried to do that here. And it usually, people get upset, they get mad, but oh well, what can you do? John's dealing with it here. And he says, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words. This guy was bad-mouthing and trash-talking the Apostle John and his associates. Now, I'm pretty sure there's even some here today that would say, well, you shouldn't do that. In fact, I saw a comment recently, I think, from somebody here in the church that, well, we just, no, we just got to be loving, which is true. But at the same time, when someone is in a public position like Diotrephes, John finds it necessary to call him out and to identify his misdeeds. So again, the problem is far too often we interpret love from our own emotions and feelings rather than the way love is presented in the Bible. Do you think it was mean, nasty, hateful when Jesus said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God. I suspect by today's standards, I, I'm honestly shocked at how many people still even go to church and read the Bible because everybody today is so easily offended. How can you read the words of Jesus with that mentality and even like Jesus? Because every, everybody's minds have been so twisted, so brainwashed, you can't say or do anything today without somebody getting offended. I guess that's why in so many churches, they only just study select scriptures here and there. Oh, no, we can't study that one. That'll really turn people off. But if you don't study them all, you're never going to get to know the real God and the real Jesus. And if you, if you don't like the real Jesus, fine. But don't say you believe in Jesus if you don't like him, if you don't love him, if you don't take every word that he says as the gospel. Stop pretending. Stop faking it. Stop fooling yourself and everyone else and be honest. But if you really love him and you want to serve him, then you better not get offended by anything that he says. And you better not just read it and believe it. You better live it. Now, I would say in light of what was going on here, John was really being, he was exercising tremendous patience with this guy. I would have probably told Gaius, take this guy out behind the church and lay hands on him. In the name of the Lord. John says, if I come, we're going to have a talk. John is definitely bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The sad part... Now, here's another thing that amazes me that I've experienced. We're going to have our 31st anniversary in January for this church. First, uh, first Sunday in January. The thing that amazes me... Now, Diotrephes was a leader in the church. He's rebelling against John trash-talking him, seeking the preeminence. Now, I don't know what was going on within that church, how many people knew what Diotrephes was up to, but 
as a pastor, it blows my mind. Now, it says two or three witnesses, right? It blows my mind how many people who aren't even in leadership are so ready to believe the worst about me, other people in leadership, with no evidence whatsoever, based on the word of somebody who's not even in leadership. It's happened many times over the years. I guess, again, it's just part of the deal. You've got to live with it. That's reality. There are always guys like this. The sad part is that guys like this always find at least a few people who fall for their garbage and line up behind them. Remember Korah and Abiram, or Dathan, they all rose up against Moses. Lucky for people today, God doesn't deal with them the way he dealt with those guys. When they rose up against Moses, the ground opened up and swallowed them. I prayed that prayer, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> Perhaps some have prayed that prayer about me. So I'm awful thankful that God doesn't do that anymore. Even with the crucifixion of Christ, a few nasty dudes in the crowd those Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, rabble-rousers stirring up the crowd. Crucify him! Give us Barabbas! Remember? That's all it took. Even though I'm sure there were many in that crowd that knew Jesus and loved him, but they were so easily stirred up to turn against him. And they're not content with prating against John and his associates with malicious words or gossiping maliciously about us, as the NIV says. Not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren. So not only was he trash-talking John and his associates, Diotrephes refused to allow the men who had a personal endorsement and recommendation for the apostle to John to minister in the church. Now, Pastor Chuck is no longer with us. He's with Jesus, but as my pastor, mentor, leader... It would have been like Chuck calling me on the phone and um, saying, I'd really like you to have so-and-so come and speak. I think you'd really be blessed. And for me to say, um, I won't allow these men you're sending my way to teach here at Calvary Chapel East. And by the way, Chuck, I think you're a jerk. I can't even remotely imagine doing anything like that to my overseer, my mentor, my pastor. And then they're as I've served under other pastors prior to planting this church, there were times when I didn't always agree with everything they may have said or done, but I would never have dreamed of behaving in that manner. But I praise God for that. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So not only would he personally not receive them, he would not allow anybody in the church to receive them. So this guy really was on a power trip. And if anybody was to host one of these traveling teachers, he would put them out of the church. So John's final indictment against Diotrephes here is he won't even allow those in the church who have the gift of hospitality to exercise it. If they tried to do it, he would kick them out of the church. This guy is a world-class, power-hungry, control freak. And so, yes, Virginia, it's, it's the holiday season. Yes, Virginia, there really is a Santa Claus. Or what? 
Yes, Virginia, they even had those kind in the first century church. It didn't take long at all before that dual nature began to rise up, that fleshliness, and impact the church, which is a powerful testimony, by the way. The church of Jesus Christ, which we're part of. Do you like that? I like being a part of that. The church of Jesus Christ has endured 2,000 years of persecution from within and from without. If, the, if this church, and I say the church universal, which we're a part of, if the church of Jesus Christ were not of God, it could never have survived the level of attack that it has endured. And in our day and age, that's ramping up again. More and more, Christians and Christianity are being denigrated, humiliated, castigated by the world. And even by some who claim to be a part of it. The latest, I don't know if I'd mentioned this, I'm sure you've probably heard it by now, but the Pope has uh, denounced the resurrection of Christ. And I had an article, it's been on my desk for months, so I never did bring it in here, but majority of Christians in the UK, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, don't believe in the resurrection either. So all the fundamentals of our faith that are essential, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the atonement for the sins of the human race on the cross by Christ, the resurrection from the dead, all of these are systematically being rejected and eradicated from the theological position of many denominations and many believers. Jesus made some interesting comments about the last days. He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And when he says faith, he's talking about the true faith. There are many faiths, right? Many belief systems in this world. But Jesus said, will I find many who are still holding to and embracing the true faith? I think the obvious answer is no. The Bible does predict a great falling away in the last days. Uh, a friend of mine who went out to plant a church a number of years ago encountered a guy like Diotrephes. He got into the area. I won't give any names, but it was a Calvary chapel. And there were several Calvary chapels kind of scattered around this area. This guy had kind of set himself up as the local guru to these other pastors and kind of was controlling everything. These guys wouldn't make a move without his permission. And he wasn't real excited about Elmo coming into the area. We're going to use a fake name. And uh, it was just, just like this diatrophy situation. And what it had served to do was kind of oppress these ministries in the area. And there was a lot of oppression in that church as well. Something very rare and unusual for a Calvary chapel. They'd actually posted a dress code in the foyer of what it was appropriate to wear to church and what it wasn't. Does that sound like a Calvary chapel to you? Not anyone I've ever been to. And there were other things like that. So eventually, that was overcome. But just an interesting modern day example of exactly what we're talking about here. It's a sad thing when 
someone gets into that place like Diotrephes. And John is dealing with it. And so in verse 11, he tells Gaius, Beloved or dear friend, do not imitate what is evil. I think the implication here is that what Diotrephes is doing is evil. Don't imitate him. Don't and I was thinking about this, you know. There's a lot of guys in ministry, and we might look at them and say, wow, that, they sure do some weird things. Probably think that about me. But um, a lot of it, and I, and I think about it, and this is how they were taught. Doesn't mean they're a bad person. But they weren't necessarily given a good example to follow. They didn't know any other example. And so that's how they learned to do ministry. And so John is warning Gaius here, don't imitate evil. Don't imitate what is evil. Diotrephes was not the one who set a good example. John encouraged his friend not to follow in the footsteps of this guy. But what is good? Imitate what is good. See, there's nothing wrong with imitation as long as you're imitating the right thing or the right person. Gaius was to follow in the footsteps of good godly men like John. The Apostle Paul, I argue, was probably about as humble as you can get. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore I urge you, imitate me to the Corinthians. Corinthian church had its issues with immorality and so forth. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, imitate me. But here, here's the qualifier. This is what Paul means. This is what he's getting at. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So we as believers should be looking to find people who behave as Christ behaves and imitate them. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Ephesians 5.1 Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Paul is telling Gaius, please don't look to Diotrephes as an example Imitate what is good. John, Paul, Peter, the other apostles, and the men who were associated with them, like a Timothy. In fact, at one point, Paul said all men seek their own. Pretty much Timothy is the only one that had stuck with him. There were a few other good men that stuck with Paul, like Dr. Luke, Barnabas. Look for those folks. Sadly, far too often it seems people do the opposite. As we mentioned earlier, they are so easily swayed and persuaded and follow after what is passed off as spirituality, fake spirituality, but in fact is evil. Verse 12, Demetrius has a good testimony. So here's one recommendation Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. So in direct contrast to the character of Diotrephes, he recommends Demetrius as a good example. So apparently virtually everyone who had been exposed to the ministry of Demetrius, who was apparently one of those traveling ministers, spoke well of him. And he's well spoken of by everyone and John always brings it back to this, from the truth itself. Now, you've probably heard me say many times, you get into 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, love is patient, love is kind. You can put Jesus' name in there and it fits like a glove, right? 
Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is long-suffering. Try putting your own name in there. Not quite as easy to do, is it? But Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and from the truth itself. You could read the scriptures about truth and plug Demetrius' name in there and it fit perfectly. Good guy. And John says, we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true. We also bear witness, or NIV says, we also speak well of him. So Demetrius, this is really important. Try to grab a hold of this if you don't get much else from today, and I hope you do get more, but Demetrius had the approval of, one, his fellow believers, two, even more importantly, the word of God, and thirdly, the church fathers, the apostle John, three powerful, dynamic recommendations and this folks adds up to a stringent criteria for those who would serve in ministry he who would be first like Diotrephes is an automatic disqualification many years ago a pastor friend of mine told me something that's always stuck with me you look at the book of first Timothy Timothy says lay hands on no man suddenly there's a lot of that going around today too if you have a dynamic personality, if you're talented and so forth, you can go into a lot of churches and you're going to get a gig just like that. But again, that's not biblical. The idea is that someone should come in, sit under the teaching, prove themselves faithful. Most churches don't have time for that. We're on a, hey, we're on a schedule here, man. We've got to have 20,000 people by 2020. We need all the dynamic, charismatic people we can get. And if they're saved, all the better. <laughs> but if not, we can work with that. James 3.1, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, higher standard. And we've seen that standard here exalted, uplifted, uh, exemplified in Demetrius. Fellow believers, word of God, those who are in authority over us. Demetrius didn't meet those qualifications. And we could reasonably add to that those in the world. First Timothy is talking about the qualifications of an elder. Chapter 3, verse 6. Not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Well, that condemnation was devil wanted to be like the most high. He wanted to usurp God's power and authority. He was kicked out of heaven for it. You lift somebody up too soon, they think they're hot stuff. And that leads to a lot of trouble. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. That was a challenge for Paul when he first got saved. Everybody knew him as that uh, rabid rabbi going out to arrest Christians to kill them. They were very skeptical of his conversion, and he had to prove himself the real deal. That he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Then finally, John says, you know that our testimony is true. Gaius knew the integrity of John and the others was beyond reproach. How did he know that? Because he was in relationship with John. 
in fellowship with John. And again, that's something that so often today is lacking in the church. Close fellowship, relationship, getting to know people. They get to know you. We see a mirror image of what's happening in the world with what's happening in the church. I don't really want to know who you really are. Just lie to me. Tell me what I want to hear. Put on a good show. Put on a good front. Put on a good face. And we just won't go any deeper than that. That doesn't work if we really want to get serious about God and his church. Gaius knew that he could take John's word to the bank. And that requires relationship, fellowship, being together. You know, our relationship with God is a covenant relationship. It's called the new covenant and the blood of Christ. And since every one of us who have received Christ as Lord and Savior are part of that new covenant, that means not only are we in covenant with God, we're in covenant with one another. But how many believers today really live that way? Like you're really in covenant with your brothers and sisters. That's the reality of it. Can you imagine how amazing this church, any church could be if we really live like that? Now, I think our church does a pretty good job. We've got a lot of good fellowship, a lot of relationship, a lot of support. But we could still do better, couldn't we? And we should want to. We should desire to. But it, I'm going to have to be honest with you here. Don't, don't get mad at me. It's not going to happen just by coming on Sunday for an hour and a half. There's other opportunities. There's women's Bible study. There's men's prayer, koinonia groups. This outreach today to the nursing home. When you calculate the amount of time that we spend together compared to the totality of the time in any given week, it's pretty minute and minuscule. In the early church in the book of Acts, how often did they gather? Daily. Now, I'm not throwing that out there. I know that's not going to happen. But we have a Thursday night Bible study. Pastor Carl does an amazing job. It's a pretty small group of people. Back in the Jesus movement days, people were flooding to the church. Now, literally, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, early 70s, just about every night of the week to study the Bible. One of the ways you know you're in the midst of revival is when people cannot get enough of the Word of God. I'm praying for those days to come again. In the meantime, I'm thankful you're here. I'll take what I can get. If I can get you on Sunday morning for an hour and a half, that's great. But I'm not satisfied with that. I've got to be honest. I want more. I think God wants more. What do you think? Because out of all the things we do in life, things like this and some of the other activities that I've mentioned, now again, there's, there should be things happening at home. Let's be honest. I don't think any of us do as much as we should at home in terms of our own personal I'm not going to ask for a show of hands but how many would say in order to really get serious about physical exercise you almost have to join a gym or something you know you've got to make some kind of a commitment and maybe spend a little money man I better get down there I'm paying 40 bucks a month right 
Or you buy a treadmill and then you don't use it. It's too easy. It just sits there. I, I got to get out of that gym, man. I'm paying this fee every month. Plus, they have a jacuzzi and a pool. And, you know, most of us don't have that at home. Some do. You get my point? And so, in a perfect world, we would all be there at our desk spending hours in the Bible every day, hours in prayer. Every, every waking moment that we weren't at work, if you still work, some are retired. Every waking moment that you're not at work or you're not, you know, eating a meal or taking a shower or, you know, try to spend a little time with the family, but, you know, hours and hours there at the desk every night or on your knees. Let's be honest. It doesn't happen for the most part. Why do you think God established the church? Because he knew we all needed help. We needed to be led. We needed to be fed. We needed to be gathered together. To, to have affirmation. To recognize I'm not, the, I'm not a weirdo. I'm not the only one. There are other people that believe what I believe. That love God like I do. The devil's goal is to make you believe all those things. That you are a weirdo. That nobody loves God like you because you're weird. You're a fanatic. Keith Green, if you remember the, the great Keith Green. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. Keith Green wrote that and many other great songs. He said, a fanatic. Now, Keith Green was pretty radical. He said, a fanatic is somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. Get it? He tells Gaius. John tells Gaius. And you know that our testimony is true. Diatrophes, had he, had he not been totally full of himself, would have recognized this fact as well. Yes, the New Testament church had problems and problematic people from the very beginning. Remember a couple named Ananias and Sapphira? That's another thing we're probably gl glad that God doesn't do anymore. Right? They lied to Peter. Oh, yeah, we, we gave all the money to the church. All they had to do was just be honest and say, well, yeah, we did hold back some for ourselves. You know, we need a little for retirement. Oh, no, they wanted to look all spiritual. Yeah, we sold that land. We gave all the money to the church. Peter goes, really? Boom! Ananias drops dead. They bring Sapphira in. Tell us, Sapphira. <laughs> wow. I know why God doesn't do that kind of stuff now because not very many people could handle that kind of power. Can you imagine? You just say the word and somebody drops dead. God knows we can't handle it. Peter could. Peter walked with the Lord for three and a half years. Peter went through hell and back to get where he was. So Sapphira... You guys gave all the money to the church, huh? Oh, yeah. Yep, just like he said. <laughs> Boom! Uh, your husband's dead outside. He's waiting for you. Boom! What a trip, man. And we're all glad that doesn't happen anymore, right? 
Here's the thing. The apostles... Now, Moses was tempted in the wilderness, remember? He got so frustrated, he said, God, just kill these people and start over. How would you like to have him for a leader? <laughs> he tells the, God, just, they're terrible. These Israelites, kill them all. <laughs> anyway, the apostles did not give up on the church and if we were to eliminate all the imperfect people, there would be no pastors and no churches. Right? Jesus is the one who established his church, and he's the one who will sustain it. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter makes this profound, concise statement of faith. Who do men say that I am? Oh, Elijah, Jeremiah, blah, blah. Jesus says, Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. The Holy Spirit showed you, Peter, who I am. I also say to you that you're Peter, Petros, pebbles, little rock, and upon this rock, me, Jesus, I will build the truth of who I am, Peter, which you've just stated. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church is not a man-made institution. Man's done a good job of messing it up over the years. But it is a, a God-made institution. Jesus is the one who established the church. He's the one who will sustain it. He's done it for 2,000 years, and he will continue to do it until we see him face to face. My first responsibility, our first responsibility, is to this local church body, this family of believers. We can't control what other churches do, but we can individually and as a church take a firm stand for the truth. This we can do, this we must do, and this we will do. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the wisdom of the great apostle John. Lord, we pray that this study today will impact how we think, how we live, what we believe. Lord, we want our beliefs to be totally in alignment with the truth of your word. We ask you to strengthen us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Give us the strength we need to endure because your word says that those who endure to the end will be saved. Lord, that we not turn to the left or to the right. We would not give in to the ways of this world, the deceptions of the enemy. Lord, that we would... Be filled with your agape love. But Lord, we understand that that love does not always look the way we think it does. There are times, according to the great James Dobson, when love, love must be tough. Jesus modeled that tough love. Lord, only with the power of your Holy Spirit can we do that in the proper way. Lord, we, we need your help to know when to be soft and gentle, to know when we should be strong and firm. Lord, because we want to be used by you to help those around us. And that happens different ways with different people. So we need the daily infilling guidance and direction of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you promised to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So we do humbly ask now for that infilling of the Spirit, wisdom and guidance from you, Lord, as we navigate the troubled waters of this world in which you've placed us, that we might be a light in the darkness for your glory. And Lord, for anyone here today who needs ministry, anyone who needs salvation, anyone who needs 
deliverance, whatever it might be, Lord, that you would just touch each heart as we close and those who need prayer would come forward drawn by your Holy Spirit to receive that ministry of prayer in these final moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.